The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. All right, Amos chapter 6. If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and flip them on open. Amos is a tiny little book in the Old Testament towards the end of the Old Testament. After Joel, before Obadiah. If you hit Matthew, Mark, you've gone too far. So um, tonight I'm going to do things a little differently. Uh, If any of you guys are new, um, then I'll explain this a little bit. Um, Typically what we do at Heritage is we teach verse by verse, book by book. So we take a book and we go from beginning to end. And we exegete, is the word for it, take verse by verse, and we sort of break down what those verses are. And that's what I've done all the way up until now in Amos. But um, as we'll kind of see, Amos starts to say a lot of the same things, um, which is good. Being What's the word? Repetitious? Is that right? Thank you. Um, Repetitious is good, but sometimes... uh, it's good to take a zoomed out sort of a look at chapter. So what we're going to do with chapter 6 is we're going to read the entire text. I don't want to leave anything out. But rather than actually going through every single verse, I want to sort of point out to you guys a theme that I believe kind of runs through the entirety of the chapter. Um, and so we're almost going to do somewhat of a topical type teaching, but I'm going to pull it from what we're looking at here in chapter 6. So if you'll allow me, uh, that's what we're going to do. Uh, let's pray. Um, would you guys, uh, I, just, I just love doing this because there's something about inviting the Lord for yourself. Would you take 30 seconds and just on your own, would you just start to work in your heart and pray uh, in your heart that God would work and speak to you and then I'll close this out and then we'll start. So just for 30 seconds to yourself, just invite the Lord into this place that he would work and speak. Tonight, Father, we just, um, we come before you humbly. We come before you uh, realizing and recognizing, understanding that your word is the only source of absolute truth in this world. God, we come tonight sort of beaten and battered by all of the falsisms and false truths, all the secular thought, all of the almost truths that we ingest every week through secular media, television, Lord, through people around us, God, and we come to you, um, whether we realize it or not, starving, dehydrated, needing true and living water. God, we need you to, as Romans says, to renew our minds, God, to take the areas that we've shut you out of in the way that we think and to remold those, God. We need you, like the potter presses the clay, to push on the areas that are out of place, Lord, you see the ultimate work in each of us. You see what you're trying to accomplish in each of us. Lord, would you press us tonight? Would you chisel at us, God, like a sculptor chisels at art? God, would you reach down into the heart, the places where we don't even know there's issues, 
the sin that's so deep in our heart that we don't even know it's there, but it's killing us? Would you reach in and would you heal? Would you convict? Would you reveal? Would you shine light in the dark places, God? Holy Spirit, move. I'm not interested in what I have to say tonight. In fact, I have nothing good to say, but you have all good things to say. You have all eternal wisdom. Holy Spirit, would you take over? Would you push me out of the way? Would you proclaim yourself and your glory tonight, Lord? And may we hear and obey and receive. I just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, kind of interesting. In 2001, a guy by the name of Jim Collins, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he wrote a book, and the book was called Good to Great. It was a leadership book, uh, and it was specifically geared towards the business world, okay? So CEOs, people that run and manage corporations, things like that, and it actually became a best-selling book. Uh, it became sort of the go-to leadership book in that era. And in that book, this is a secular book, okay? In that book, Collins spent five years of research, okay? And over those five years, he observed 11 different corporations. And those 11 corporations he picked specifically because they were corporations that were good, and then all of a sudden they were great. And he was trying to figure out what it is that makes a business go from good to great. And so he observed these corporations over a five-year period of time, and his sort of overall ending synopsis was this. He, he found two common traits between the CEOs of all 11 companies, two things that all of them had in common. The first one won't surprise you. Uh, he found that all of the CEOs of these companies were extremely driven. They were effective. They, were, um, uh, they would stop at nothing to succeed and to push forward and to move forward uh, and to make their company successful. Go figure, right? Okay, that's important. But the second thing was surprising for them. It was actually something they did not expect to find, and it was this. They found that all of the leaders of these CEOs were self-effacing, that they were modest, that they were constantly pointing to the contribution of others, that they never aspired to be put on a pedestal or to become a larger than life. Essentially, they were humble. They were humble guys. Kind of weird, right? Especially when we live in a culture that's obsessed with self-promotion, that's obsessed with pride, that even teaches our kids from the youngest age that you believe in, what, yourself, right? That you owe it to yourself, that you should do this and this for yourself. We live in a culture that's obsessed with our culture, obsessed with our nation, obsessed with our everything about us. And yet here are these highly successful CEOs of these businesses that are, what, humble. Interesting, right? What's even more cool than that is that God seems to actually be drawn to humility. Did you know that? That God loves humility, that God enjoys humility. God loves to see his children walking in humility. Isaiah 66, 2 says, all things my hand has made, the Lord says, and so all things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Humility is a big deal to the Lord, okay? He's drawn to it. It's attractive to him. Now, as you can imagine, as attractive as humility is to the Lord, on the other side of that would be, what? Pride. And as much as you can imagine the Lord loves humility, you can imagine that he disdains or abhors or dislikes pride. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the forward mouth do I, what, hate. Now that's not the only verse. 
God speaks out against pride almost more than any other sin. He says that he hates it. He has disdain for it. He dislikes it. Does not like pride. Now, tonight, in Amos chapter 6, we have, unfortunately, I say unfortunately, we unfortunately have a perfect illustration of why God hates pride. (laughs) We have a perfect illustration of a nation that was completely prideful and what the outcome of that nation was because of their pride. So let's learn from that nation. Let's learn from their mistakes. And I'd like to end where I'd start. I want to end by talking about humility, but I think before we can talk about humility, we need to understand what pride is. We need to to look into that. Now, a lot of you guys are saying, I know what pride is. I get what pride is. Um, But I want to look a little deeper. I want to strip it back to its barest point. I want to zoom out into sort of a, a satellite view of pride. What is it, really? What is the heart of pride? Where does it come from? And I think that this text... As I said, we're going to sort of take a, a zoomed out look at this text, and I think this, this illustrates well the point that's here. So um, it's going to be a little bit dry, but just follow me on it. Amos chapter 6, I'm going to read it, try to stay awake, and then we'll get, we'll get going. Amos chapter 6, verse 1, the Lord says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. The notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes... Pass over to Calneh and see, and from there go to Hamath, the great. Then go down to Goth of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the sea of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him, who is in the innermost parts of the house? Is there still anyone with you? He shall say no. And he shall say, silence, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands and the great house shall be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in low debar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Arabah. This is the word of God, Amos chapter 6. So, For those of you that are new, for those of you that have been here, you're tired of hearing me say this, Israel in the 8th century BC, okay, so that's 800 years before Christ, so we're talking like 3,000 years ago, Israel was in a prosperous time, okay? They had much wealth, they had much affluence, they were extremely materialistic. Israel was split into two kingdoms, kingdom in the north, kingdom in the south, kingdom in the south is called 
Oh, I failed so miserably. Kingdom in the south is called? Judah, thank you. Kingdom in the north is called? Thank you. Uh, and, see if you can get this one right, Amos came from a place called Tekoa. Got a few in the back, thank you. Came from a place in Tekoa, which was in the south in Judah, traveled up to the north in Israel to deliver this message. He was a good old boy. He wasn't a politician. He wasn't a rich man. He wasn't a fluent man. He was a good old shepherd from Tekoa that God called to go to the north to prophesy to the materialistic, to the selfish, to the God, essentially rebellious nation of Israel. Now, look at verse one a little bit more closely here in chapter six. Verse one says, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. So beware to those who are what? At ease, who are comfortable, who are living in constant comfort of materialism. Woe to you. And then he says, who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. The notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. So he mentions two cities. He says Zion. Now, guys, get a gold star if anybody knows what Zion is. Anyone? Jerusalem. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. Okay. Um, So Jerusalem was the capital in the south in Judah, and Samaria is the capital in the north. I'm, yeah, Samaria is a capital in the north. So we have the two capitals. So God is essentially calling out, he says, woe to you who are living in comfort and in ease and are living in the cities of the south, of the cities of the north, Zion and Jerusalem. And then he says specifically, he says to the notable men. Okay, that's important to know. The notable men, the people that are important. Okay, I just love doing that. That's fun. The people that are important. Okay, the notable men, the people that are a Big deal, okay? Got it? So that's who this is being spoken to. Look at verse eight. Verse eight is the theme of this chapter that we're gonna talk about. He says, the Lord God is sworn by himself, declares the Lord the God of hosts. I abhor the what? I abhor the what? Pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds and I will deliver him I deliver up the city and all that is in it. One of the issues that God is declaring and calling out through the prophet Amos is pride. We looked at a lot of the other issues in the past weeks, their false worship, their lack of love for, the, for, uh, for justice and for the poor, how they were misusing and mistreating poor people, and now we're looking at the issue of pride. So, I wanna take a second and I wanna talk about pride with you, okay? I wanna examine what is pride, and that's the question, what is pride? Now, a secular definition, which I think is actually pretty good, a secular definition I found defined pride like this. A feeling of deep pleasure and satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. You guys got that? A deep feeling of pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. So, essentially, I feel good about what I have done. I feel happy or I feel satisfaction about something that I myself have achieved. That I put myself up by my bootstraps and I did. Okay, that's pride. Now pride has an interesting history biblically, okay? Pride, I don't know if you guys know this, but pride is actually the first sin that is mentioned in the Bible. Not, 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 not only mentioned, but it's actually the first sin in, his, in history that we know of. 
Okay, now back even, think before Adam and Eve, okay, the first sin that we know of is pride, and it was whose pride? It was Satan's pride. Okay? Satan fell from heaven, was disconnected from God, left the glory of God, went to essentially a war with God over pride. It says in Isaiah 14, where we read the story about how Satan fell, you don't have to flip there, but in Isaiah 14, 13, it says, you said in your heart, Lucifer, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount assembly in the far reaches of the north. So basically Satan... His sin of pride was that he wanted to be greater than God. You got that? He wanted the glory for himself. He wanted to be in a place of being the creator, not the creation. Okay? Note that. The first sin of pride that we see ever is Satan that we know of. Then we see the next one in the garden. Okay? God creates the heavens and the earth, the animals, the fishies, all that stuff, right? And then he creates man, he creates woman, puts them in the garden, they're in innocence, they walk naked and unashamed before God, they're in perfect fellowship with God, there's no sin, there's no awareness of sin, there's no awareness of hurt, no death, none of that, they're in the garden, they're in innocence, okay? And then here comes Satan who, his sin was pride, right? Steps into the garden in the form of the serpent, approaches Adam and Eve, and what does he say specifically? He says, God's lying to you. He doesn't want you to taste of that fruit because he knows that if you taste of that fruit, you will become God's. Listen to this. This is cool. St. Augustine wrote like a long time ago. He's like way dead, okay? St. Augustine said this. Pride, and follow this. This is cool. Pride is the commencement of all sin. Got that? Commencement of all sin. Because it was this sin which overthrew the devil, from whom arose the origin of sin. And afterwards, when his malice and envy pursued man, who was yet standing in his uprightness in the garden, it subverted him in the same way in which he himself fell. For the serpent, in fact, now listen, only sought for the door of pride whereby to enter when he said, you shall be gods. What that's saying is that pride is the door by which Satan used to bring sin into the garden. Pride is the sin that he used by which to bring sin in the garden. Sin, all sins, as far as I can think of, especially the sin of lying, is birthed out of a sin of pride. It all starts with pride. Pride is the mother of all sin especially sin of lies. And even in the garden, Satan knew that he had a doorway into causing mankind to fall, and that doorway was called pride. He said, you can be what? You can be like God. And man fell because he wanted to be like God. Is that not the same exact sin that we struggle with every day at the very heart of all the things that we do? Why do we not obey God? Because we would rather be God. Why do we not listen to God's word? Because we'd rather listen to our word. Why do we worship ourselves? Because we want the glory for ourselves. Because we want to be God. <laughs> if you strip back sin to its very root, you find pride all the time. Pride is the mother that births all other sins. It's the doorway by which Satan tempted Adam and Eve and succeeded. It's bad. <laughs> it's horrible. And the Lord abhors it. 
The Lord is disgusted with it. The Lord refuses it. It's important to understand that pride is synonymous with lying too. Pride is synonymous with lying because listen, if God is all glory, if God is all power, if God is all control, and me, worthless, small, puny, compared to the galaxy, stands up and says, no, I actually am important, and I'm not, I'm doing two things at the same time. I'm lying and I'm being prideful, but they're really the same thing, aren't they? Because anyone who thinks that he's something and he's not is lying. And none of us are anything apart from God, so anyone that's prideful is lying. There's a syno- there's, it's a synonymous thing there. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 8. It says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Paul says again to the Corinthians in 3.18, he says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And then he says to Galatia in chapter six, we'll get there in a little bit in Sunday, he says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Okay, we're nothing. We have nothing to boast about. So when we boast about it, we're not only being prideful, but ultimately we're lying to ourselves. When we think that we have strength, when we think that we have glory, when we think we have any kind of power outside of God's will, we're lying to ourselves. C.J. Mahaney, one of my favorite preachers, which by the way wrote a phenomenal book that I resourced heavily called Humility about this subject. And he said this, he said, why does God hate pride so passionately? Question, why does God hate pride so passionately? Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on him. Okay, so again, it's when we put ourselves, when we elevate ourselves to a position where we are now the creator and not the creation, which is just simply not true. Even Jonathan Edwards, he he called pride the worst viper that is in the heart. He said pride is the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Jesus Christ. He ranked pride as the most difficult sin to root out and he struggled with it his whole life. He wrestled with it. So, just a quick few thoughts on pride. But now looking at our text, again, we have this great example ahead of us here that explains some of the dimensions or some of the aspects or some of the manifestations of pride, what it can look like, how you can see its ugly head coming out, okay? Israel models it well. So three dimensions of Israel's pride that we're gonna look at. If you guys have your Bibles, let's look at the text again. Look at verse two for the first one. The first dimension of Israel's pride that we're gonna examine is that they compared themselves favorably. So if you're taking notes, they compared themselves favorably. Look at verse two. The Lord says to them, he says, pass over to Calne and see, and from there go to Hamath, the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. And he asks this question, he says, are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster. The Lord's saying, go down to these surrounding nations and, and tell me something, O great and mighty and powerful Israel, are you so much better than all of your neighboring nations? Because that's what they're saying, right? That's what they're proclaiming. We're the, tell me if this sounds familiar, greatest nation in the world, right? Israel's the greatest. We're better than all the surrounding nations. He says, why don't you go down there and you tell me that you're better than them. So sign number one of pride that we see in Israel 
is comparing themselves favorably. You, 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 <laughs> this is like the most common way to, to tell when someone's prideful. They don't compare themselves to someone that puts them in their rightful place. They compare themselves to someone that puts them in a place that's not realistic. Okay, so this looks like this. I grew up in a town called Montague, which is like 600 people. I'm not exaggerating. I think it really is, right, Jesse? 600 people, something like that. And the school there, the middle school, has like, I don't know, maybe 60, 70 kids. Small school. And I remember in seventh and eighth grade, my friends were in the basketball team, and they thought they were awesome, right? I mean, they made the team. They're playing games, all this stuff. But in reality, like, they're awesome out of like 60 kids, you know what I mean? So who cares? Like seriously, who cares? And we're all like that in our little fishbowls and our little subcultures, our, our little 20 people at work or our little group of 100 that we hang out with. You know, we might think that we're good at something or think that we're special about something. But in reality, if we were to compare ourselves to everyone in the world, we're nothing special. All of us have hobbies and we might think we're good at, but in reality, when we get outside of our culture, we're not really that good at it. Or another example of this would be like the kid uh, when you're growing up that hangs out with kids that are not as cool as him because he wants to be the coolest one in the group. You know what I'm talking about? So that he gets compared to those ones. So he feels like the strongest, he feels like the fastest, he feels like the smartest, but really he's just hanging out with kids that are younger than him, hanging out with kids that aren't maybe as strong or whatever. Prideful people usually surround themselves with those that make them look better. And this is what Israel's doing. They're comparing themselves to surrounding nations that probably, yes, are weaker than them, but they're not comparing themselves to the right thing. Now, that's the secular maybe kind of thinking of it. What does this look like in church? Okay? For each of these, I'm going to ask that question. What does this look like in religion? What does this look like in, in, in heritage? What does this look like as Christians when pride manifests itself or pops up in that way? I think, first of all, it looks like when we justify our behavior by comparing ourselves with other people. Okay? I do it. You guys do it. Yeah, this is bad, but I mean, look at this guy, right? I mean, my life's a whole lot better than his. And he's in shams, right? So we're comparing ourselves to the people around us. We're justifying our sin or justifying our lifestyle, justifying our weakness or, or our lack of skill or whatever it be by people around us that are maybe in a worse off place. This is what we do in Christianity. It's pride. It's just straight up, flat out pride. Another thing we do as Christians is we compare ourselves to culture when it comes to holiness. Yeah, I mean, but look at, look at me compared to like some people in San Francisco, I mean, I'm doing pretty good, you know? I mean, I'm not trying to, like, marry my pet, you know? I mean, like, is that too far? Uh, you know, like, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, I mean, like, at least, at least I'm doing okay, right? I mean, we compare ourselves to secular culture, which is totally not cool. Of course secular culture is far off. They don't have the truth. They're, they don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. You're not held to that standard. We can't just compare ourselves to the secular culture and feel good about how we are. It's just pride. It's just trying to feel good about something that's not even there. It's a lie. Now, the gospel solves this, okay? The gospel solves this, and here's how. Because the gospel starts with two things, okay? The beginning point of the gospel starts with two things. First of all, it starts with God's holiness, okay? If you don't get God's holiness, you're not gonna get the gospel, because if you don't get God's holiness, you don't get why you need to get saved. What do you need to get saved from? Why do I need to get saved? It's like the guy that's never seen rain before and you tell him to get in a boat. Why? What's the point, right? If you don't understand God's holiness, you don't understand God's wrath, you don't understand God's judgment, you don't need to understand eternal hell, and you don't understand the need for salvation. So the starting point for salvation is understanding God's holiness, and secondly, understanding, God, understanding my sinfulness, my lack of measuring up to God's holiness, right? That's the starting point for the gospel. If you don't understand that, it's gonna be really hard to understand why it's important and amazing that God loves you, okay? 
Now the gospel solves that pride issue because the starting point for the gospel is humility, isn't it? In order to come to a place where we say, God, I need your grace, we have to understand his holiness and we have to take our share in part of our sinfulness. (laughs) So the gospel starts in humility. It's rooted in humility. The first step of the gospel is in humility. That's why Jesus had such a hard time with the Pharisees because they thought they had it all figured out. As Christians, we should be measuring ourselves to one person, Jesus Christ. You say, well, I can't compare to him. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, well, he'd lived a perfect life. Exactly. So if you're anything but humble, it tells me that you're not comparing yourself to Jesus. You're comparing yourself to your person sitting next to you. You're comparing yourself to your brother or your sister in Christ or whatever. If you're comparing yourself to Christ, then you will walk in humility because he's perfect and you know you don't measure up. That, as Christians, is who our goal is. If I could be like Christ, that's the goal, okay? And guess what? We're going to fail. And guess what? Humility should come from that. Your definition and understanding of grace is only as good as your, your self-comparison to the ultimate standard. So the amount that you compare yourself to Christ is the amount that you're going to understand grace and humility. Jesus tells a story in Luke 18. You guys remember this? He says that a man goes into, two men go into the temple. Luke 18, I'll just read it. It says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, the other, a tax collector, just to contextualize that for you, okay? Pharisees were awesome according to social standards. They were rich, they were affluent, they were uh, powerful, they had a voice in politics, they had a seat at the best tables, they wore the best clothes, they got attention when they went out, the paparazzi was around them, right? Tax collectors were the scum of their culture, why? Because Rome was in control of Rome was in control of Israel, and the tax collectors were Jews that were getting paid to take money from Israelites and give it to the Romans. So they were hated, they were disliked. We have these two men, they're standing in the temple, and the Pharisee, the righteous one, standing by himself, prays this. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector standing next to me. Thank you that I'm not like that guy, right? I fast twice a week, and then he begins to tell God why he deserves God's favor. I'm like this guy. I give tithes all that I get, but the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, Lord, I can't even look at you because you're so good. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Okay, so Jesus preached that humility was the starting point for the gospel, okay? It's the starting point for the gospel. The prideful, they don't get it. Why don't they not get it? Because they don't know they're sick. (laughs) They think that they're fine. They think that they're well, but the tax collector gets it. If you guys saw that movie, Son of God, my favorite part, did you guys see that movie when it came out? My favorite part of that movie was when, when Jesus and the tax collector have like that moment and that, whoever played that tax collector did an amazing job because the tax collector, Jesus didn't even have to say a word to him. He just, his eyes start welling up and he knows. The tax collector already knows. I need salvation. I need grace. I need to be set free, right? And he knows. It's the beautiful thing about someone caught in sin versus someone caught in pride. The person caught in sin knows that they need life, that they need help, that they need justification, that they need grace. The person caught in pride thinks that they're fine. 
to think that they're good. You starting to get why God hates pride here? The second thing they do is they exaggerate their military victories, okay? Look at verse 13 and 14. He says, you who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? So Israel is basically taking the credit, they're taking the glory, and they're exaggerating even their own military strength. Now listen, prideful people always exaggerate their accomplishments. Okay, you do it, I do it, have a tendency to remember things as being a little bit more cool than they really were, you know? Like you have a tendency to remember that thing you did when you were younger, being a little more epic than it really was, and we sort of kind of just bloat the details a little bit, we kind of glorify the details a little bit. This kind of pops its head up in things like name dropping, you know? Um, I saw a guy do this just recently where he was like, uh, yeah, Francis Chan, uh, yeah, Louis Giglio, yeah, yeah. these are all like famous Christian people, you know, like had lunch with James McDonald and, and then I was, you know, and I'm like, you're name dropping, dude, like you're, you're like, you're totally making yourself sound cool right now because of who you know and we all do it, right? We all do it. Or maybe only recalling the victories in your life instead of the losses, always talking about how you did things good or did things, you know, awesome and never talking about how you failed, it's pride. Now listen, let me just clarify something, okay? Now humi- humility isn't speaking ill of yourself. This isn't Eeyore syndrome, okay? Eeyore syndrome is, and you guys all know an Eeyore, right? You guys all know an Eeyore. Oh, I just stink at everything, and I'm just horrible, and I'm just, I might as well just go crawl under a rock and die, you know? I mean, we all know the Eeyores, right? And, and it's like, you're not being humble, you're being selfish, And you're still being prideful because you want everyone to feel bad for you. It's not Eeyore syndrome. Humility isn't necessarily speaking ill of yourself. It's it's speaking realistically about yourself. Okay? So if I'm not good at something, I'm not going to brag about it. But honestly, even further than that, humility is really just not speaking about yourself at all. It's not so much just speaking correctly about what you can do. Sometimes it's just not speaking about yourself at all. It's just saying, you know what? I'm not even going to mention that I did that. I'm not going to be the one-upper in the group. Oh, my God, I went on a really cool trip this year. Oh, yeah, where'd you go? Oh, yeah, I went to the moon, you know. I mean, not being the one-upper, you know, in that situation, but just being willing to just, just not boast about who you are, not boast about what things you've done. Now, in case this isn't hitting you, what does this look like in the church, okay? How does this manifest itself in the church? I think a big thing I wrote down was polarizing your testimony. Let me explain what that means. Polarizing your testimony, that means that Everything before Jesus was bad, and everything's just been really good since. Haven't really had any sin problems, haven't really screwed up. Okay, that's pride. You don't want people to understand and to know that you're still struggling, that you still have garbage in your life, okay? And we polarize our testimonies. I hear the testimonies all the time. Yeah, I was just a really bad person, and then they end the testimony there. What about the last 20 years? You're telling me that you haven't screwed up in the last 20 years? Seriously? I mean, come on. Like, don't polarize your testimony. That's pride. Be honest. I was in Israel, and we, we went to this, um, we went to Megiddo. It's like one of the oldest cities in the world. It's up on this, like, kind of mount thing. And they had to dig through the bedrock to get to the water, okay? And so we're walking down the stairs, and I'm looking at the wall of this bedrock as I'm going through. And you know what I see? Thousands and thousands and thousands of chisel marks, and not like big chisel marks, like tiny, itty-bitty little chisel marks. Like hundreds of Jews for hours sat there with little chisels and just bing, 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 and they chiseled out this huge hundred-yard deep well, and it took them forever, I'm sure, but 
as soon as I saw those chisel marks, it just made me like respect and be in awe of what they did. Because I saw the amount of work that went into it. Now, can I just say, don't hide your chisel marks. <laughs> as silly as that sounds, like don't. Because people need to see how many times and how many ways God's grace has worked in your life. People need to see how many times God has had to chisel at your pride, God has had to chisel at your sin and had to remind you and to draw you back. People need to see that, they need to know that. God designed you as a clay vessel, right? That's what Romans says. He designed you to put you on a shelf, some for honor, some for dishonor, and to display you. But did he put you on a shelf to display you? Or did he put you on a shelf to display the one who made it? And what better to display the one who made it than seeing the imprints of the artist and seeing all of the details that went into that vessel? Man, God has done so many things. And it hasn't been like, I got saved and everything's been roses. That's just not true. It's just not. And then number three. Verse three. They hide themselves from future realities. Look at verse three. He says, Or you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of the violence. He's saying that you're putting away the idea that judgment is coming. You don't want to think about the reality of what is going to happen and what's going to be the repercussions of the way that you guys are living. This is an aspect of pride. Okay? Pride... Prideful people don't want the truth. Okay, you hear me on that? Prideful people don't want the truth. They don't want to hear about their failures. They don't want to hear about what's going to happen if they keep going the way that they're going. They don't want to hear it. And they'll do anything to not face reality. Israel in this nation at this time was prideful. And they just put off thinking about it. They didn't want to think about the fact that God was going to judge them, even though he had already said that he would. They don't want to think about it. This kind of manifests itself, just to contextualize it, this manifests itself in in ways like we don't want to ask people what they think about certain things that we do because we know they're going to be honest. Yeah, you ever had a friend like that where you don't really want to ask them what they think because you know that to be honest, it's probably going to hurt your pride. It's probably going to make you feel kind of lame. I spent some time living out at Applegate for, and we, we lived with a, a sweet lady named Sherry and she just was the greatest thing ever. And I loved her because she's probably, she's an old gal, you know, but she's just this little fireball, you know? And, and she's living with like, she's like probably in her 70s or 80s and, she, and she's living with all these like young guys that want to go be pastors and we're all like starry-eyed and, and she would just like verbally slap us across the face so many times like, like you need to go get a job first. You need to go work in the world before you go, you know, pray for a living and stuff. She was just totally real and I would be very careful about what I asked Sherry about my opinions for. Like, Sherry, what do you think I should do? Because she would just straight up tell me what she thought, you know. And, and sometimes we avoid those kinds of people. Even though it's the right thing sometimes, even though it's loving, we avoid it because we don't want to know. We don't want to know if we're not good at something. We don't want to know. We just would rather avoid it, right? The other aspect of this is we don't want to think about the fact that we may end in demise. And now, this, this to me applies more to our country, right? We're America. We're the greatest nation on the earth, and there's so much pride in our country. Like, we're never gonna, nothing's ever gonna happen to this country, right? Well, let me tell you something, okay? Samaria is the capital of Israel, where we're talking about. Now, Samaria was known for being built up high. It was built in an amazing military strategic point. So much so that even after it was destroyed, Herod, hundreds of years later, around Jesus' time, Herod actually came and rebuilt it 
just simply because it was such an amazing location for a city. And so these people in Samaria, the people that Amos is speaking to, they feel secure, they feel strong, they feel like no one's gonna touch me, no one can get to me, we're good, we're safe, we got no problem, okay? <laughs> kind of like America, right? Who's gonna mess with us, right? We're strong, we're good, we're safe. We don't wanna think about anything that might shake us up. We don't wanna think about anything that might scare us. And look at verse four. It says, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out in their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp like David's uh, invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. What's he saying? He's saying that you guys are so distracted from what's coming because you're so comfortable. Listen, obsession with wealth and comfort is often just merely a a way to cover up and hide the realities that you don't want to think about. You hear that? Obsession with comfort and food and alcohol and things that numb your mind and take away anything that, 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 so you don't have to think about stuff. Now, does that sound familiar? I mean, fast food places, not demonizing them, I love them, okay? Let me just say that. It's not a saying to go to Taco Bell. Fast food places are filled with people that are drowning their sorrows and realities in grilled stuffed burritos, as delicious as they are. Our country is professional at drowning any thought of reality with things that numb facing reality, Isn't, aren't we? And so is this nation. They're living on, this is they're sleeping on their ivory beds, they're drinking their wine out of bowls, they're getting hammered straight up, drinking their wine out of bowls. They have the finest oils. They eat lots of food. They have lots of money. They do whatever they can do to distract themselves from the reality that God's judgment is coming. And rather than deal with it, rather than accept reality, they just ignore it. They just push it out. They distract themselves. And there's an interesting thing, and we'll wrap it up here, but there's an interesting thing in verse six on the, on the, on the very cusp of, of how he's calling them out for you know, sitting on their beds and being comfortable and being idle, he says, in verse six, he says, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Now, that's kind of interesting. They're not ruined over the, the, they're grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Now, in Genesis 37, we read about the story of Joseph. Now, these people would have known about the story of Joseph, okay? Torah was out. The law was out. They would have known. And I think that Amos is drawing back to this picture. Now, what happened in the story of Joseph? Joseph has this dream, right? that he's gonna rule over his brothers, and he proclaims it, not smart. His brothers get what? Prideful, okay? Um, and so one day, Joseph's coming out to bring food to his brothers, he's got his coat of many colors that his father gave to him because he was preferred, he was the favorite, and they're prideful and they're jealous, and they say, let's kill him. <laughs> let's be done with him. And this dream won't come true, and we don't have to bow down to him, and blah, 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 okay? So Joseph comes along, Reuben says, no, don't do that. Let's not kill him. He begs for his life. And they say, okay, well, let's do this. Let's throw him into a well. And so they throw him into a well. And there's no splash because there's no water. Okay, oh, so unmerciful. They throw him into a dry well. So he's probably got some, some, some lacerations. He's probably got some broken bones. They throw him into a well. And then what do they do? They sit down and eat food. <laughs> I, I never noticed that before. Okay, Amos is drawing our attention to this. They just betray their brother. And then they go, you know, obviously sell him into slavery. 
They betray their brother because they're prideful. They do such a wicked and cruel and evil thing. They don't even throw him into a well with water so he can have something to land on. They throw him into a dry well and then they go eat food like it's no big deal. And Amos is saying, you guys are sitting on your ivory beds and you're getting drunk with your wine and you're eating your food and you're being materialistic and enjoying your money and your privileges in your safe city of Samaria and Zion and guess what? You're just like Joseph's brothers. You're committing iniquity and you don't care because you're stuffing your face. In fact, you're stuffing your face because you're guilty about committing the iniquity. And the more that you eat, the less that you think. The more that you're happy, the more that you're comfortable, the less you have to face the reality. That's what Amos is saying. It's really kind of interesting. Now, if you want to know why evangelism is so hard in America, have you guys ever won that, wondered that? Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to tell people about Jesus in our country? It's because our country is prideful. People are prideful. We're hardwired from birth to be prideful. We don't need God. We're comfortable. We have what we need. What do we need God for? Not only are we prideful, we lie to ourselves. We don't think about realities. We don't face hard truths. We just eat more food. We watch the shows we want to watch. We have Netflix now. We don't even have to watch commercials. We just watch what we want to watch. It's hard to evangelize in this country because we're prideful, because we lie to ourselves, and because we're comfortable, right? We're comfortable. That's why everyone's okay with being their own God because there's really no retribution. It's easy to be your own God in our country. Now, enough picking on unsaved people. Let's talk again. How does this play out, how does this play out for us in Christian church? How does this play out in religion? Well, first of all, it plays out that we like teachers a lot of times who won't tell us the truth because we don't want to deal with the truth. So we listen to, as Timothy says, teachers that tickle our ears, that make us feel good, that won't call us on our stuff, that won't call us to repentance, that won't talk about the holiness of God. The other thing we do is we try to find comfort within the church. We find the church that has the cushiest pews. We find the church that has the biggest potluck. We find the church that has the best kids' ministry that we don't have to serve in. We find the best church that has music that's not too loud or too quiet or whatever. So we can get comfortable. So we don't have to deal with things. So we don't have to deal with realities. It's the same thing. So, why does God take pride so seriously? That's the question. Why does God take pride so seriously? Because, because of this. And I mentioned it when I was talking about Jesus' parable, but you can't convince a prideful person that he's sick. You can't. Because he thinks he's fine. He thinks he's well. You know why it's so, you know why God's so much more concerned? Listen, you know why God's so much more concerned about spiritual and religious pride and legalism than he's worried about the guy who's struggling with alcohol, the guy who's struggling with lust, the guy who's struggling with, uh, with, with, with money problems, addiction, all these things. You know why he's more concerned about the prideful guy? You know why he's more upset at and irritated with the pride than he is with the sinful other side, the things that we all are so worried about? Is because a prideful guy doesn't think he needs grace. And the guy who, yeah, went back to alcohol for the fifth or sixth or seventh or eighth or ninth time, the guy that keeps continually struggling with sin, he knows he's sick. And this guy doesn't know. He's got cancer and he won't admit it. But this guy knows. At least he knows he's sick. At least he knows he needs grace. And God says, I want people that even if they're struggling so much in sin, at least they know that they're sick and I can treat them. And Israel does not know because they're prideful and God hates pride. Because he can't get to your heart because you block him out. That's why. God hates pride. 
It blocks him out. C.S. Lewis says, brilliant, a proud man is always looking down on things, right? Things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. (laughs) So simple. Thank you, C.S. Lewis. People that are proud, they're always looking down. They don't see up. They don't realize the reality of things. One of the things that's most challenging about this book, I'll be honest, is it's so repetitive. That's why I, I, t- I kind of mixed it up a little bit today and we, we just took a different, different way to, to dissect it. But the reason it's so repetitive is because God is yelling and yelling and yelling. Chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, chapter six. Israel, hello, you're sick. You're prideful, you're sinful, you need grace, you need repentance, and Israel doesn't care <laughs> because they're prideful. Because they think they're fine. Because they think that they're good. Guys, beware of pride. The church doesn't worry much as much about pride. Why? Because it's not as messy. The church doesn't worry about legalism. The church doesn't stress about legalism. They worry about alcoholism. They worry about the guy that's living in sin because it's more messy. Pride isn't messy. But which one does God hate more? Which one should we be more concerned about? The one that doesn't allow us to see that we have cancer or the one that allows us to see we have cancer? At least sin has a symptom. Beware of pride. God hates it. So, in closing, how do we stay humble? That was the question. I, I, I got the end of my sermon today and I'm like, okay, don't be prideful, okay. How do I be humble? And that was the question. So just, just four quick things, and I'm, I'm serious, quick things, if you're taking notes. Four quick things about how to stay humble. Number one, admit you're prideful. That seems simple, right? Admit that you're prideful. The number one sign of being prideful is the person that doesn't think he's prideful, okay? If you admit that you're prideful, it's a beginning, it's a start, okay? I am so prideful, okay? I'm so prideful, and we have to admit it. We have to deal with it. We have to talk about it, to point it out. Now, how do you know? I mean, how do you know if you're prideful? Well, here's some indicators. Here's some questions to ask yourself. If you want to write these down and think about them later, that's cool. But here's some questions. Number one, what do I get offended easily about? You ever have those buttons that certain people push on? Usually that's a pride issue. Seriously. Because you've found your worth in something that you do or that you've done, and if someone mocks it or pushes on it or hits that nerve, all of a sudden you get irritated. You get mad because someone's pushed on your pride. So what do you get offended easily about? Those are probably areas that you need to think about. Number two, what do I enjoy people noticing that I have or do? What do I enjoy noticing that people notice that I have or do? Now, for some of us, that's our looks. For some of us, it's our money. For some of us, that's our stuff. For some of us, it's none of that. For some of us, it's our spirituality. For some of us, it's our wisdom. For some of us, who knows? The list goes on, right? But what are the things that you like it when people notice that you're good at that? That you like it when people notice that you can do that well? That's an area of pride that you need to watch out for. Number three, how do I treat others that seem less important than me? How do I treat others that seem less important than me? People that won't get me anywhere, technically. Number four, how much time do I spend on my image? And I don't just mean physically. I mean, how much time do you put in doing things so that people will think that you're something that you're not? That could be the car you drive. That could be the way that you talk about your title at work and what you do. This one's huge. How do you react? Now listen, this one's good. How do you react when people treat you as less important than you think that they should? I went to a pastor's conference this week, 
and I am just the worship guy. And um, in my world of worship guys, that's a cool thing. But in the world of senior pastors, I'm just the worship guy. And there's a guy there that is a senior pastor at a church in our organization. Cool guy, great guy. He didn't mean anything by it. But I've met the guy like four times. And I know I do this to people too. So um, I met the guy like four times. You know, I, I, um, I've had literally lunch with him with just me and him and Jeff. And we talked for a couple hours. I had lunch with him with just a few guys and I had a conversation with him. And I went up to him at the conference. I'm like, hey man, how you doing? And he's like, hey, what, what church are you from? And I'm just like, yeah, that hurts. <laughs> you know? But I'm just a worship guy. Who cares, right? But, but it realized, you know, at first I'm like, well, that's kind of, that kind of, that guy's lame, whatever. But then I thought about it. I'm like, wow, that's, that's, that's a pride issue for me, isn't it? I think that guy should really recognize who I am. Oh, you're Sam. You're from Heritage. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Who am I? Who cares? Like, I, I deserve to be forgotten by that guy. Honestly. So, Ding, 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 pride issue, right? That guy should have treated me like something more special than I, than I was, than he did, right? No. Hello? Number two. Learn more about God's glory. Okay, we're talking about how to combat pride, how to be humble. Learn more about God's glory and holiness and power. Theology should always bring humility, not pride. Okay? What is theology? Theology, the study of God. When we learn about God, it shouldn't make us prideful about our knowledge. It should make us humble. God is vast. God is great. God is glorious. And I'm nothing compared to that. And I'm thankful for his grace. Number three, ask people for honest feedback. People that will be honest with you about things. And then listen to them. Don't just say, nah, you're dumb. I'm totally called to do this. (laughs) I have straight up told people before, dude, you're not called to do what you think you're called to do and they have completely ignored me. It's pride. And then lastly, and most importantly, preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Why? Because I can't think of a better example of humility than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now think about this for one second, okay? I swear this is it. Think about this. God is all power and majesty in eternal heavens. He has created everything. He is responsible for everything, okay? He decided, because we couldn't do it for ourselves, to leave that place of heaven, to come into a fallen world full of sickness and pain, physical ailments, physical boundaries, to climb inside of a stinky and smelly and brutal uh, body in an era where food was scarce, (laughs) where he probably was hungry, where there wasn't a lot of comfort. Okay, God knew all the areas. He could have come into the 21st century, but he didn't. And to walk among sinners and men, a holy and a pure and a righteous God, and then to be mocked by the very people that he was going to save, to be spat upon, to have a crown of thorns jabbed into his, the creator of the universe, jabbed into his head, to be beaten almost to the point of death, to be hung in humiliation, half naked up on a cross while they gambled for his garments down below, while they mocked him with a sign above his head that said, King of the Jews, the creator of the universe. And he wasn't forced to do it. He did it willingly. He did it because he wanted to. What is more humble than that? What should inspire us 
to put ourselves in positions that are lower than we deserve. What should inspire us to walk as humble people that think less of ourselves and more of others and think less of ourselves and more of God than when we gaze continually and daily at what Jesus did on the cross. Preach the gospel to yourself because in the heart of the gospel is a humble God. Not a God that just created a universe, spun it off and left, but a God, not a God that just, just demands glory though he does, but a God that is humble that came not as the conquering king, but as the suffering servant that took our stripes so we could be healed. Humility. Where, where farther do we need to look than the king of kings himself? Amen? Will you guys stand with me? Sorry I went a little bit late. So God, tonight we're just thankful. We admit, God, we admit our pride Lord, each of us have so many of it in so many areas. Lord, forgive us for not taking it seriously. Forgive us for thinking of it as maybe a third or fourth or fifth sin that we need to worry about, Lord. But you take it so seriously. In your book, it's number one. God, I pray you would help us to root out those areas. And Lord, we acknowledge that we can't do it. We acknowledge that we don't have the strength to be humble that we're wired to be prideful through our fallen nature, through our father Adam, God, that we need your grace to come in. So Lord, just make us a people that are noticeably humble.